I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about musical beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan, and welcome to the jungle, baby. It's the only way to open this episode. <laughs> and you're not going to die, right? We, we, we can assure our listeners that they will survive this episode. But we don't have fun in games. Even if they're going into the jungle. We have spite and bile. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, on our show, usually, you know, we talk about rivalries between you know, one person and another person. But in this episode, it's basically like one guy versus the entire world. <laughs> Man, I mean, you you got to love Axl Rose and just all of Guns N' Roses. They're just always starting shit. They're writing songs that piss people off, dropping F-bombs on TV, peeing in places where they're not supposed to be peeing. I mean, it's just, you got to love them. You do have to love them. They were one of the biggest bands of my youth, one of the first badass rock bands that I ever loved. And of course... Their big album came out in 1987, Appetite for Destruction. And then they put out two enormous albums, Usual Illusion 1 and Usual Illusion 2 in 1991. And many great songs came from those records, November Rain, Don't Cry, You Could Be Mine. But the song we're going to be talking about today, not one of the best songs from those records, but very memorable, especially in terms of The robberies. most infamous. Yes. Of course, we're talking about the song Get in the Ring. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Axl Rose versus everybody that, that he name checks and get in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Axl versus all. Axl versus all. And, you know, it, we're going to get into this in the episode, but like one of the big things that fascinates me about this song is that I feel like it wouldn't exist now. Like if Axl could have gone on Twitter or Instagram in 1991 and just vented a little bit. He probably wouldn't have had to spend millions of dollars in recording studios 
to record this song and then put it on an album that went on to sell like a gazillion copies. I mean, that's a comforting thought. I feel like that might be giving him more credit in the sanity department than he might actually have. Like, he might have actually really appreciated the fact that this angry letter took millions of dollars and hours of studio time. Like, that might have been part of the appeal. Well, I think we can both agree that we're glad that he didn't just tweet about this, that he put it on a record, <laughs> because here we are almost 30 years later, and we can still dive into the minutia of Axl Rose's beefs with the rock press in the early 90s. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. So we take it back to the release of User Illusion 1 and 2 in September 1991, and I always thought this was kind of the rightful successor to the Appetite for Destruction, right? Like, Lies for me just didn't cut it. Yeah, I mean, Lies does have Patience on it, one of the great Guns N' Roses ballads, but you're right. That That's is bas- It was basically like a stopgap release while the world waited for Axel to make these two huge, just massive albums. And I always thought Use Your Illusion were kind of like Axel's Plastic Ono Band record in a way, Uh. because it came out around the same time that he got really into regressive therapy, which dredged up all sorts of childhood traumas with his dad and stepdad and his mom and you know all these horrible things, which, I mean, he always had a temper, but this shortened his temper into like microscopic territory here. And I feel like these discs are just the result of that. They're just panoramas of, of bile and score settling. Yeah, you know, I love that comparison. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but it just makes me think of like, if Axel would have said, I don't believe in Guns N' Roses, I just believe in me. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been beautiful if that could have been a lyric on this record. But I I think you're right. I mean, the influence of Axel going into therapy was undoubtedly an influence, not just on these albums, which, as you say, are just full of bile and and, and confessional uh, songs about Axel's youth and, and, and everything that he's gone through in his life. It also translates to the music videos that they put out at this time. Are you familiar with the trilogy of, of great over-the-top music videos that they put out for the Usual Illusion albums. Yeah, there's some some mysterious appearances of, of sea creatures in there that I never really <laughs> never really understood. Yes, Axel does swim with the dolphins in the video for Estranged. That is the final video of the trilogy, the Return of the Jedi, if you will, of <laughs> the Usual Illusion era music videos. You've got Don't Cry. That's the video like where um, Axel literally walks through a mirror at one point while conversing with two other versions of himself, which is incredible. Then you have the November Rain video, which is, I think, the most iconic of the three. You know, to carry over the Star Wars analogy, this is the Empire Strikes Back of the Guns N' Roses trilogy. And, and we can agree Empire is the best Star Wars movie, probably, right, of the of the original three? Oh, yeah. Oh, easily. And I think we can agree that November Rain is the critical nexus point of the Guns N' Roses trilogy. You have Axel, you know, having a wedding with Stephanie Seymour. You have Slash throwing his guitar into the canyon. Uh, All sorts of great stuff. Um, But yeah, the dolphins really jump out at me. Uh, from a strange. Yeah, does that, anyone look like with like a Freudian background know what dolphins mean? Please tweet at <laughs> us because I really do want to know like what that represents in like his dream psyche. I, I think yeah, I, I just know it has something to do with use your illusions, like using your illusions and dolphins. There must be some kind of connection uh, <laughs> to be to be made there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think the power of those records, and you know, we're, we're, we're poking fun at them because obviously they're. You know, very over the top and 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 bloated in their own way. But I know for me as a kid, like those albums meant the world to me. And um, when I listened to them, I heard songs about 
teenage alienation. Like I could really connect with them on a universal level. But when you dig into the lyrics, I mean, they're incredibly specific in terms of Axel's inspirations. And, and, and it's usually just him ranting at somebody for some wrong that's been done to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a shame because I was born in December 1987 and I, I wish that I could have gotten to experience GNR in, in real time because sort of experiencing it in the early aughts when Buckethead was there and Axel was like knee deep in Chinese democracy tapes, like it kind of colors your view of, of you know, their back catalog. And and this is a great example. I mean, there's so many pissed off songs where just the message is Axel just kind of writing an angry letter. You've got Right Next Door to Hell, which is about his beef with his neighbor who accused him of hitting her with a wine bottle, which, you know, I mean, <laughs> writing a song about hitting your neighbor with a wine bottle is a totally normal thing to write a song about, right, Steve? Well, and I was going to say, like, isn't she the one right next door to hell? Like, if he's hitting her with a wine bottle, like... I feel like she should be singing that song, not him. I mean, unless he's saying that it's hell to be accused of hitting someone with a wine bottle. You know, I I just feel like... Oh, yeah, he said he was the victim. He is the victim (laughs) in the case of hitting somebody with a wine bottle. That's a very Axl Rose point of view. I'm with with the neighbor on this one. I feel like if Axl was (laughs) your neighbor in the early 90s, you're the one living next door to hell. Whereas Axl should have written a song called Right Next Door to an Innocent Person Who's Just Trying to live their life you know that should have been the title of his song the worst part of that was apparently was her bottle of wine and it was supposed to be like a very nice bottle of wine too so she's also out a bottle of wine yeah i mean at least hit her with two buck chuck you know like not not the good stuff but at (laughs) any rate not that you should hit anyone with a wine bottle i'm just i'm just saying that's our psa don't please if you're listening (laughs) don't hit your neighbor with a wine bottle especially expensive stuff right (laughs) So so you've got that. You've got Back Off Bitch, which is about uh, Axel's girlfriend, old girlfriend from when he moved to L.A. in the early 80s. But I guess she she kicked him out over his uh, surprise, his anger issues. <laughs> so Back Off Bitch, that's another one. Yeah. You have Estranged, which you mentioned, yes. uh, sort of about uh, from a bummed out period from uh, his life after his marriage to Aaron Everly was annulled. Yes. Um, what else we got? We got You Could Be Mine, which is about Izzy's failed relationship with his ex-girlfriend. Uh, and then, of course, you have in the liner notes, I forget if it's one or two or both, uh, you have a, um, you have Fuck You, St. Louis. Yes. Which is a, um, you know, it's rare. I, I'm not familiar with too many bands calling out an, an, an entire city in their liner notes. Is that, this is unique, is that not? That's a unique thing, especially when it's over an incident that was entirely your own fault. You know, like I, I, I think we can see a pattern here, like where, you know, Axel's writing a lot of songs about girlfriends who uh, he feels did him wrong. But it's clear that he was just like a really angry, belligerent person and uh, brought all these things onto himself. And in the case of the St. Louis incident, you know, I, I feel like it's the ultimate example of that, because, of course, GNR, they played a show in St. Louis in uh, 1991 and a riot ensued. Because Axel refused to finish the show, he blamed the security. And what was the? Can you do an Axel impression here? Like, what was what was the exact quote that he said before he stormed off? Well, he saw somebody in the audience with an unauthorized camera, and he just kind of like 
looks to the side of the security. Security, get you know, get that guy. And then he just he's dressed like in my memory, he's dressed like every one of the village people all in one person. <laughs> oh yeah. He's got like a like a leather police hat and like a feather boa and a huge crucifix. I don't know if anyone in the village people had a crucifix, but in my mind they did. And he, he tosses off his hat and he dives into the audience. Duff and Izzy, I think, are the only ones just kind of like playing these like low almost like the Jaws theme. And uh, and so he's out there wailing on this guy, getting his camera. He comes back on stage and he says, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And then the best part is he just, he not only does a mic drop, he like spikes the mic as hard as he can on the stage floor and storms off. And, uh, and the crowd rioted. And by the way, I just want to say like, Jordan is like the nicest person I know. So I like hearing you <laughs> repeat Axel Rose's words because it's a great <laughs> juxtaposition <laughs> between your kindness and his petulance. Uh, yeah. Can calling- we do like a Rockabye Baby album of like me just reading Axel Rose lyrics to like kids <laughs> to put them to sleep? It would. That would be good. I mean, and I think you're going to be trying out this later because, you know, and when we were talking about this episode, I wanted to make sure that Jordan was the one reading the lyrics to Get in the Ring. <laughs> Just because of his unassuming delivery, I think it just really brings the songs home. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, but yeah... Speaking of getting it, get in the ring, it's another example of Axel essentially using this mammoth canvas that Guns N' Roses has to settle scores with the people that he feels has wronged them. And in this case, of course, it was the rock press. Uh, the song originated as a Duff McKagan song called Why Do You Look At Me When You Hate Me, which... <laughs> I love gr- that line. Great title, by the way. Yeah, I would. I'd be curious to know. Like, it'd be nice to see like an alternate universe, like where that song ended up on the record and not get in the ring. Because I think that might have been a better song. But at any rate, Axel takes this song and he pretty much chucks everything about it except for the opening line, and he turns it into this screed, essentially. And screed is really the only apt word here. I don't use the word screed lightly, but I think it applies to get in the ring. He's taking shots at. All of the big hard rock magazines, essentially, of the time. He's talking about Hit Parader. He's talking about Circus. He takes specific shots at two pretty big journalists of the time in the hard rock world. You have Mick Wall, who was a writer for Kerrang! And you have Bob Cuccioni Jr., uh, the founder of Spin. And the Gooch. Look, I remember where I was the first time I heard Get in the Ring. You know, I bought the Use Your Illusion records like the week they came out. This was like a huge deal for me. But I'm curious for you, Jordan, because as you said, like you were born the same year as Appetite for Destruction came out. So you came to these songs a little bit later when they were divorced from their original cultural context. What's your take on the lyrics when you dive into them? And and again, like I said, can you please recite them uh, for posterity's sake? Oh, with pleasure. Um, you know, I mean, on one hand, you feel for Axel. Like, he's an artist, and artists are sensitive folk. He feels persecuted. He feels judged. He feels misunderstood. And, you know, that's not nice. But but he didn't say that. You know, and there's a breakdown in the middle of the song, and it, it, it came out a little something like this. <laughs> and that goes for all you punks in the press that want to start shit by printing lies instead of the things we said. Oh. That means you, Andy Seacher at Hit Parade, Circus Magazine, Mick Wall at Kerrang, Bob Guccione at Spin. What, you pissed off because your dad gets more pussy than you? <laughs> Fuck you, suck my fucking dick. You be ripping off the fucking kids while they be paying their hard-earned money to read about the bands they want to know about. Printing lies, starting controversy. You want to antagonize me? Antagonize me, motherfucker. Get in the ring, motherfucker. I'll kick your bitchy little ass, punk. Woo! I gotta say that that's like Opie. I've never heard someone say antagonize you, motherfucker, and have me think, oh, what a sweet guy. (laughs) You just bring the sweetness to that song that doesn't exist otherwise. Yeah, I mean, he he obviously just like went off. And again, the idea that he's in the studio recording this song, and there's lots of people around him. There's record producers. There's other people in the band. There's people from the record label. I want to read an oral history of all the people that were around Axel when they recorded Get in the Ring. And I want to know, like, did anyone ever try to intervene and say, you know, maybe you know, calling oh, these people up? Oh, it's the opposite. Up, 
He, maybe he blames other people. But in later years, I think he was doing an interview on like Eddie Trunk a couple of years ago where he was talking, oh yeah, it was Duff's idea to tell me to like really get my feelings out there. And and the Geffen A&R head, Tom Zutout, I think is how you say his name, the guy, Pete Davidson played him in the dirt. They said, oh yeah, yeah, they were telling me to just speak my mind. It was all their idea, which is, you know, totally bogus. I mean, we'll get into this in the episode, but I find it hard to believe that there wasn't anyone any voice of reason who said, Axel, maybe you just want to shout into a pillow for a half hour instead of recording this song. <laughs> maybe that would be a better way to get out your aggression than putting this on this enormous record. It's going to be one of the biggest rock records of its time. Um, if that didn't happen, I wonder if people were just intentionally setting him up to humiliate himself, knowing that in 30 years, people would still be talking about it on podcasts and, and having a laugh over it. You know, it was either... They tried to stop him and he wouldn't listen or there was some sort of sabotage going on in the studio. Yeah, I mean, just the insulation that must have been around him at that point must have been truly crazy for it to get to the point where this was on the record that sold, what, seven million? Yeah, it's it's nuts. But I, I think to get deeper into Axel's psyche, it's important to know he had sort of like Nixonian levels of paranoia when it came to the press. There was a case in, I think it was just after User Illusion came out in 92, when uh, when uh, GNR toured and were played a show at Madison Square Garden. And a review in the New York Times described the crowd as oddly restrained, which mm. is, you know, kind of a, a neutral thing to say. If anything, you could read it as like, wait, why, why isn't the crowd going more nuts? Great show. Exactly. Um, and Axel, Axel, of course, took it that way, right? Axel wasn't offended when he read that, right? Um, uh, not not so much. He mm. uh, he actually challenged the reviewer to come on stage at the next night show and explain himself. <laughs> and then when when the reviewer declined, I imagine politely declined. Uh, Axel went and gave an interview in Rolling Stone and said he didn't have the balls to stand by what he wrote, and he got exposed. You know what? I'm not going to make the New York Times any more money. It was an obnoxious piece. It was shit journalism. He's just getting started. He could have written, I didn't like the show personally. I think they suck. But you know what? Okay, fine. Cool. You can think we suck, and I can think you're an asshole. But don't try to make it look like nobody enjoyed it. And then he went on to call the reviewer a person with some severe fucking personal problems, and he has no business being there or writing about our show. This is from a, a pretty pretty small comment, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and again, like you said, if you want to read it as an insult, you can. But I think that the more sane way to read it would be to say, hey, this audience is a little dead. You know, this is a great band. Why aren't they being more excited? Uh, he's writing about the audience, not so much about the band. So it's like weird for Axel to react this way. It's also, I think another thing that's important to note too is that like Guns N' Roses, especially for the kind of band that they were, was like pretty critically acclaimed at the time. Yeah. Like, like, like you know, if, if you want to talk about other bands from LA, whether it's Poison or Motley Crue or any of those big hair metal era bands, they tended to not get a lot of respect from critics. And yet Guns N' Roses with Appetite for Destruction People were comparing them to like the Rolling Stones of like the early seventies. I mean, maybe I maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine the New York Times like reviewing a Poison show. You know, I right? Mean, it's exactly. Like, it's it's pretty nuts. Exactly. It, 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 a rat. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, yeah. Like I, I think Axel was definitely the kind of person who was uh, liable to snatch an insult from the jaws of a compliment. You know, I think that was just his way of looking at it. And it, it's an interesting segue into talking about one of the big targets of Get in the Ring, uh, which is Mick Wall of Kerrang! magazine. Because Mick Wall, um, of course, if you read a lot of hard rock biographies like I do, he's a very famous name. 
Uh, he's written books about Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. He's written a couple books about Guns N' Roses, including a book called The Most Dangerous Band in the World, which came out in 91, and I remember getting that book. Uh, have you, are you familiar with Mick Wall? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a legend. He's He's got another Axl Rose biography, I think, uh... Oh, W-A-R, I think it's called, the story of Axl Rose from a couple of years ago. And it's an, an, another incredible book. He's a legend. Yeah, absolutely. And and he was pretty tight with the band in their early years. He was he was a champion of them in the late 80s as they started to get really big in the wake of Appetite for Destruction. And he was really one of those guys that like Axl Rose could just pick up a phone and call whenever he wanted to do an interview. Um, if texting existed back then, you would say that he was on you up status with Mick Wall. You know? <laughs> like he could text, he could text him metaphorically, say you up, and then they would be, you know, having an interview. And it's that very relationship that got Mick Wall in trouble because in early 1990, Axl Rose calls Mick Wall up. It's like in the middle of the night, isn't it? Yeah, I think Mick Wall was saying he was like brushing his teeth or something, getting ready for bed. Yeah. <laughs> So just and he just, got you up. Just picture. I mean, you and I are, are journalists. Imagine like you're getting ready. You're in your pajamas. You're getting ready to wind down, brushing your teeth. All of a sudden, your phone rings, and who is it? It's 1990 Axl Rose. I mean, pretty incredible thing to have on the other end of the phone. And the reason why Axl called was because he wanted to vent about Vince Neil of Motley Crue. And, and who doesn't want to vent about Vince Neil? I mean, I you've called me in the middle of the night to complain about Vince Neil from time to time. I mean, if you've got to vent about Vince Neil, you should probably vent about Vince Neil to a journalist. That's probably the best way to do it, I'd say. <laughs> and the reason why he was mad was because of this incident that occurred at the 1989 MTV Video Music Awards, where um, it started with Axel and Izzy Stradlin from GNR performing with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on the song Free Fallen. And uh, have you ever seen that performance? Is that the one with the snake dance? Like oh. Axel's like, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's like prime era Axel. He struts out there like Pepe Le Pew. And <laughs> he sings the chorus of Free Fallen with Tom Petty doing the snake dance, which for my money is the greatest frontman dance of all time. Unless you want to give credit to Davy Jones of the monkeys for originating it. Cause he, he kind of did the same thing. Oh and God. you know, in the video for daydream wow, believer, yeah. of uh, course. Yeah. I never even made. Ah, oh yeah. I th there's always That's been a, a theory I think that, thing that it's the snake dance where I've heard, also heard it called the Davy Jones dance that Axel does. But anyway, it's a great performance, but as they're walking off stage, Vince Neil punches Izzy Stradlin because Izzy supposedly hit on Vince Neil's, was it his wife or his girlfriend? I think it was his wife. His wife, who was a, uh, a mud wrestler at the Tropicana, I believe. <laughs> Which, um, just a fact. Just yeah, a fact. exactly. Uh, no judgments. I'm just saying, you know, it's perfect that Vince Neil's wife was a mud wrestler at the Tropicana. Um, so Vince punches Izzy Stradlin. And... Axel, you know, this is several months later that he calls Mick Wall. He's still angry about this. And he's basically challenging Vince Neil to a fight through an interview with Mick Wall. And it's interesting, you know, when you look back in retrospect, why didn't Axel just punch Vince Neil after he punched Izzy? You know, like if you wanted to fight Vince Neil, you think he would have just done it then. Seems like, like the moment was there, yeah. The moment was there. And, and Izzy, Izzy was like out, right? He was like out cold? Yeah, apparently he got cold cocked. I mean, I think part of the, the uh, you know, the disagreement here was that 
I think the idea was that he got sucker punched. That Izzy you know, had no opportunity to square up and do like a real fair fight that Vince just just decked him backstage. Uh, but uh, anyway, Axel was really hot and bothered about this. And he he gives this amazing quote. He says, I tell you, he's going to get a good ass whipping and I'm the boy to give it to him. It's like, whenever you want to do it, man, let's just do it. I want to see that plastic face of his cave in when I hit him. I feel like I'm doing a slight John Wayne impression here. I, <laughs> I'm imagining Axel talking like John Wayne. I, 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 I don't know. I wish John Wayne once said like ass whooping. I feel like I would lo- like a lost scene from like the Searchers or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear John Wayne say Izzy Stradlin. You know, just <laughs> if we could somehow, if someone could do a deep fake of that, that'd be amazing. Um, Personally, I don't think he has the balls. Picking up again with Axel's quote here. But that's the gauntlet, and I'm throwing it down. Hey, Vince, whichever way you want to go, man, guns, knives, or fists, whatever you want to do, I don't care. Um, now, I I love this story, but like the follow-up from it like wasn't very good, and Axel was the one who got mad about it, essentially, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, there's really no ambiguity about these quotes right here. He is challenging Vince Neil to a fight. Like, there's there's really no, like, metaphor. There's there's no nuance here. It's very literal. Guns, knives, or fists. Uh, so <laughs> Mick, Mick, Mick Wall is, is typing up the interview, and he's reading this all back, and he's thinking, oh, geez, this is, this is, this is pretty tough. And he calls Axel and reads everything back and says, hey, man, like, you... This is pretty uh it's pretty explicit here. You sure you want me to you sure you're okay with this? And Axel says, "Hell yeah, man. I stand by every word." Uh so it gets published in uh April 1990. It's the cover story for Krang and, you know, as you would expect, it ignited a war between the Motley Crew and GNR camps. And you know, I mean, they're both from LA. They run in the same circles. Nikki Six and Slash had been friends. This is some like Jets versus Sharks shit. It's about to go down. I remember this playing out on MTV. Um, I, I didn't see the Mick Wall story, but I remember on MTV News, this was like a big thing. And it's almost seemed like MTV was like trying to perpetuate this, which I loved. I mean, I was eating everything up. Like they, they did an interview with Vince Neil where Vince Neil is essentially like talking directly to the camera, like <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper, you know, challenging Axel to a fight. And uh, later on in, in the Motley Crue book, The Dirt, Vince Neil claims that Axel got back to him through an intermediary, and there was this plan that they were going to fight in the parking lot of Tower Records in Los Angeles. Uh, Why you know, there? I like, I, I I don't know. Like by the smoking dumpsters, maybe. I I, I don't know. It, <laughs> but apparently, Axel bailed. And but well, but even though he bailed behind the scenes, he kept talking in the press that he wanted to fight Vince Neil. Like there was another interview that Axel did with Kurt Loder. Where he basically said, hey, man, like, if you want to fight in Atlantic City for a charity thing, like, let's do it. And I think Vince Neil even agreed to that, too. But, like, no matter how often Axel would say publicly that he wanted to fight, it seemed like behind the scenes, he never would commit to it. Oh, yeah. He blamed the whole thing on Mick Wall. He said that he was like a rotten journalist who lied and misrepresented his quotes, which... You know, I mean, you can't misrepresent what's it going to be, guns, knives, or fists. There's not much to misrepresent there. But, you know, how much he actually believed this in his own mind is up for debate. But uh, Mick got blacklisted, and uh, and he, I think to this day, uh, has a feud with him. I think in, like, the late 2000s, he, like, 
still blacklisted him from a, a Guns N' Roses show in London. So he's still pissed about this. And look, Axel, if you want to collapse Vince Neil's plastic face, like, do it, man. Or, you know, don't throw the journalist under the bus. It doesn't seem fair. But, like, it's the weird thing was he kind of came out looking pretty good, right, Axel? Like, even though he totally just ran away from multiple attempts from Vince to, like, actually call him on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because this whole thing of, like, Axel getting into fights with people, it coincides with Guns N' Roses shifting in esteem in the public. And it has a lot to do with how the rock scene was changing in the early 90s. Like, during that whole Vince Neil Guns N' Roses thing, I think the press looked at Guns N' Roses as a more authentic band. And they were more willing to give Axel the benefit of the doubt in a rivalry with Vince Neil. And you can see in the optics of how that was presented on MTV, like where, again, Vince Neil was presented basically like a buffoon, you know, like pointing to the camera, wanting to start a fight with Axel Rose. Whereas Axel had an audience with Kurt Loder, like he was the president of, of rock music at that time. You know, <laughs> I think they were sitting like in a garden, like maybe behind Axel's house or something. It's just much more dignified, even though Axel is also acting like a buffoon at this time. But that would change, I think, pretty dramatically once we get to the 1992 Video Music Awards. And I don't know if you know this about me, Jordan, but I'm kind of obsessed with the 1992 Video Music Awards. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I would love nothing more than to hear you recount this story. This is like a chance to hear Bob Dylan do like a lost verse <laughs> from, uh, you know, times they are a changing or something. I, I would love nothing more than to uh, to hear this from your lips. Yeah, this is my this is my Freebird guitar solo, I would say, uh, this story. But yeah, it. It's the story about how Axel and Kurt Cobain almost got into a fight backstage. So the short version is, is that Axel Rose and Stephanie Seymour, they're walking backstage and they're passing by Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. And just for some context, like Axel Rose really loved Nirvana. Like he actually wanted to put Nirvana on as an opening act for Guns N' Roses uh, when they did that big Metallica GNR stadium tour. Um, so he was a fan of the band, but like Kurt Cobain looked at Axel Rose as a joke. So I mean, he viewed him as like everything that was wrong with rock and roll, right? Like it's everything that was like L.A. phony manufactured machismo. Right. Like yeah, I mean like yeah, all exactly. The bad yeah, like, a, like, like a macho guy who's dropping racial slurs and songs, you know, disparaging language towards women, all those sorts of things. And Cobain, I think, probably felt that he was the antithesis of that. Um, so Axel and Stephanie Seymour walking by. And Courtney Love shouts at Axel and says, hey, uh, a Axel, do you want to be the godfather to our to our daughter, Francis Bean? Uh, probably not a sincere question. Seems like it was pretty snarky, wouldn't you say? Some elements of, of sarcasm could have crept in there. I agree. <laughs> and Axel takes it as sarcasm and he looks at Cobain and he says, you shut your bitch up or I'm taking you down to the pavement. Ooh. And which and he's not talking about the band pavement. He's not. This is not like a slanted, <laughs> enchanted shout out. He's talking about beating up Kurt Cobain, and Cobain turns to Courtney Love and he says in a deadpan voice, "Okay, bitch, shut up." <laughs> Which is a great comeback. You know, it's like he's obviously mocking Axel, and then Stephanie Seymour decides to step in to save face for her boyfriend, and she turns to Courtney Love and she says, "Are you a fashion model?" This is my favorite and part. Cor <laughs> Courtney Love says to Stephanie Seymour, no, are you a brain surgeon? 
and that's what a pretty line. much that's that's brilliant. And that's and that's pretty much the end of it right there. But it's another example of Axel wanting to start a fight and then just totally getting schooled by the end of it. God, I mean, did um, John Hughes write that? I mean, the lines in that are incredible, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, there's something about that incident that the, the thing I love about it is that it sounds like something a rock critic would have made up as a metaphor for, like, hair metal being replaced by grunge. Like, you would write a scene where Axel and Kurt Cobain have a altercation and Axel Rose is the one who's who's humiliated, you know? It just feels like a metaphor, but it actually happened, which is beautiful. That's what I love and miss about the VMAs in the early 90s. It was like like the high school lunchroom of the rock scene. Like you would have all these fights and stuff. Like, oh, it, it's not the same now. But you know, to get back to to get in the ring, I mean, I feel like the Bob Guccione Jr. part of that song, which to me, like Guccione Jr. takes it on the chin the most. Like he seems to like Axel's insult of him is very personal and he's really going hard against him. But in a way, that's also the insult that backfired on him the most, right? Yeah, I mean, this is like the kiss of death in Godfather 2, like when when uh, Fredo betrays Michael. It, it just, it, it, there's so much, he gets it the most because he felt the most betrayed. Because Spin, back in the early days, was a huge champion of, of Guns N' Roses. I mean, people forget this now, but Appetite for Destruction took something like a year to crack the top 10. And a lot of that was because of Spin calling the album, the, I think called the future of music, you know, and Spin at that time wow. was sort of the alternative to Rolling Stone. It was new and it, it was championing all the stuff that Rolling Stone kind of was missing, like hip hop and college indie rock. And so that kind of endorsement from Spin meant a great deal. But, um, Axel's view towards the press, as we touched on earlier, started to get more adversarial. And Guns N' Roses had this contract in the early 90s that they gave to anybody who wanted to interview them. And it was truly an insane contract. It had, what do I have? It, it, it basically allowed the band to edit the pieces, allowed them to write the captions, allowed them to maintain copyright ownership of the content. And failure to meet any of those demands would result in a $100,000 payment for breach of contract. <laughs> I mean, you, you couldn't, like, as a journalist, you can't sign that. I mean, there's just absolutely no way. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, yeah, it's it, it, yeah, just to contextualize that for people who, like, aren't in the media, like, there is no pop star alive that would request something like that and, and get away with it. Like, Beyonce couldn't get away with that. You know, it, it's insane that even a band as big as Guns N' Roses would have even thought to do something like that. Well, yeah, at that point, just refuse interviews. Like, like don't have a down on paper the, these insane requests. I mean, that makes it worse because, as you said, it is now on paper. And Bob Guccione basically presented it without con uh, without commentary. He published the contract just as was in the pages of Spin, basically for mockery, like inviting like fans to just like, oh yeah, you guys want to interview Axl Rose? Well, here's the contract, like sign it and fill it all out and send it off to him. And I guess the Guns N' Roses offices were just inundated with tens of thousands of copies of this bogus contract just <laughs> because Bob encouraged them. So he humiliated the group and, uh, and it gets worse. Spin, you know, at this point, obviously, Axel has some, uh, you know, he he's very uh, controlling of his image, shall we say. Um, there's a uh, a man named Danny Sugarman. He started, he was a music industry figure. He started off when he was younger managing The Doors right after Jim Morrison died. And I think he uh, managed Iggy Pop, too. He wanted to write a book about Guns N' Roses, and the band wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. So I guess Danny Sugarman spoke briefly to Axel at, like, a bar for... It sounds like it was like a 15-minute conversation. It wasn't anything big. But he took this short conversation 
and spun a whole spin cover story out of it, which uh, Bob published. And the uh, the Guns N' Roses team were not happy. They were basically like, we didn't agree to this. We didn't realize this was on the record. This was not what we, you know, what we said could happen. Um, and instead of blaming Danny Sugarman, he blamed uh, the Gooch, Bob Giacconi. Um, and uh, and that really sets the stage for his verse in, uh, in Get in the Ring, which, uh, would you like to take this again? I know it's my favorite part of Get in the Ring. Yeah, it's, again, you know, the line directed at Gooch, I like that you called him Gooch, by the way. We're just, we'll just call him Gooch for the rest of this episode. Uh, what, you pissed off because your dad gets more pussy than you? Fuck you. Suck my fucking dick. Now, let's step back for a minute. The context for that line is that Bob Guccione's dad, the senior, of course, is the founder of Penthouse Magazine. And I guess the implication here is that as the founder of Penthouse Magazine, senior is has a way with the ladies that perhaps his son does not. So very personal there, going after him. Now, there's this next verse in the song where he says, you be ripping off the kids while they be paying their hard-earned money to read about the fans that they want to know about, printing lies, starting controversy. You want to antagonize me? Antagonize me, motherfucker. Now, do you think that's directed at everyone or just Guccione Jr.? Because it does seem like Guccione, more than anyone else, was antagonizing Axel. Like, he was a champion early on, but he was really poking the bear oh, <laughs> after I mean, that contract thing. Putting on my my sort of reading comprehension hat for a moment, it, 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 it could apply <laughs> to Mick Wall, too, because he did say that the whole Vince Neil thing was completely made up. But I don't know. I prefer to think that it's just at Gooch. Just like this whole, the whole rest <laughs> of the verse is all at him. Now, Axel, you know, of course, after the antagonize me, antagonize me motherfucker part, he says, get in the ring, motherfucker, and I'll kick your bitchy little ass, punk. A clear challenge, a callback to the, what was that, the knives, fists, or guns thing from the McWall interview? I mean, he's... Exactly, no ambiguity. Unequivocally, you know, shouting this guy out, asking for a fight. Um, but it's fair to say it didn't turn out the way Axel thought it would, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the problem was Bob was more than happy to get in the ring. Like, Axel probably didn't know that, that the Gooch had something like 10 years of full contact karate experience. So he was down the go. Yeah, and he was also like a total sleazebag. <laughs> I mean, that's the other element. And I think he liked the publicity that he was going to get from this. Oh, yeah. No, he wanted to turn in this big stunt for spin. And I guess he sent Geffen a, uh, a letter after trying to get in touch with Axel a bunch of times. And the letter was published, I think, in a bunch of different newspapers. I like to read a part of it now. I just I, I enjoy how, how cordial yet <laughs> ass whooping it is at the same time. Um, I think I have a special talent for reading these kind of things. I've yes, just you heard do. your I have just heard your song Get in the Ring, and I want you to know I heartily accept the challenge and thank you for the invitation. Seem very cordial. Ooh, Let's do nice. it, I say, at your earliest convenience. By the way, oh. I mentioned in the press that I'd be only too happy to oblige you. I take the fact that there's been absolutely no response from you to indicate how busy you must be. I mean, what with canceling concerts, starting riots, and beating up paying fans trying to take pictures of you? What a schedule you've had incredible i sympathize so i just wanted to let you know directly that as soon as you're ready i am too perhaps until then you shouldn't sing that song at least not too loudly huh what a great what a great letter i'm just picturing him with like white gloves and (laughs) you know slapping axel in the face you know like i i accept your challenge of a duel you know let's meet guns at dawn you know that's very much the tone of, of that letter oh it's so good and then he was on a current affair like a short time later and he had another great quote about axel i don't think axel rose sits at home and wonders how he can make himself look like more of a bad boy 
I just think he's a bad person. <laughs> Which, touche. I, right. I, I think that was probably a pretty fair assessment of Axel at that time. So, like, did Axel just take that lying down? I mean, it, it, was that the end of it? He kind of doubled down. He was given a concert in uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is actually my hometown, uh, in December oh. of 91. And he claimed that... Uh, that he was not only going to sue magazines, like all the magazines he mentioned, presumably, but also that the people that he mentioned in the song put a hit out on him, which he called, uh, what did he call it? I think he called it a real pussy approach, putting a hit out on him. <laughs> well, you know, I guess, yeah, if that had any connection to reality, I suppose hiring a hitman to murder Axl Rose over getting the ring would be, you know, not the best move. Although, no. again... I, I feel like that probably was not grounded in anything that actually was in the real world at that point. No, absolutely not. I mean, so when push comes to shove, Axel backs down. He tries to justify it in an interview. He basically says that, yeah, getting the ring isn't necessarily literally about getting in the ring with boxing gloves, you know? Otherwise, I'd be a boxer. But, you know, to get in the ring, you need integrity. And that disqualifies Bob right off the bat. So that song about getting in the ring wasn't actually about getting in the ring. And even if it was, I wouldn't fight Bob because he doesn't have integrity. So there's some some fun logic there. Yeah, I like I like the idea that um, I can't kick your ass if, if I respect you. <laughs> um, I only beat up people that I respect and that have integrity. Uh, which, you know, yeah, you wrote a song about people wanting to fight them because they don't have integrity. And then you had like actual boxing sounds in the song. Like I think there's like a boxing bell oh, in yeah. the song and there's like and there's crowd cheering. Um it seems like a pretty literal representation of boxing in the song. Uh but yeah, I, it's a metaphor, sure. We'll we'll let Axel have that one. All right, hang on, we'll be right back with more rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? 
Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I think we need to recap here. Axel's non-fighting fighting history because we've talked about the Get in the Ring song of course and, and Mick Wall and Bob Guccione Jr. of course being the two big targets of that song you have the Vince Neil incident um, again the, the, the knives, guns, or fists there's no knives, guns, or fists at all in the vicinity uh, of that battle uh, you have the Nirvana incident backstage where he's going to take Kurt Cobain to the pavement doesn't take him to the pavement. Doesn't even play him Slanted Enchanted or any of those great albums. Really, the only fight that he gets into that I'm aware of, like as a public figure, involves the fashion designer Tommy Hilfiger. Like, are you familiar with this story? It, I, I love this story so, so much. Because especially because it's kind of like a, I would say a past his prime Axel too. So it's not even like oh, yeah. 90s era. Like this is like mid-aughts level too. I think it was like 03 or 06. Yeah, I think it was 06. Like they were at some event. Axel was, you know, at a table with Tommy Hilfiger and Tommy Hilfiger's girlfriend. And Axel, from his telling of it, he moved Tommy Hilfiger's girlfriend's drink because there was some uh, calamity that was about to befall her cocktail supposedly. And then Tommy Hilfiger reacts to that by essentially slapping Axl Rose about the face. <laughs> and I I mean, Tommy Hilfiger says that like Axl pushed him first, right? I mean, isn't that his story? Yeah, I mean, Tommy was acting completely out of fear. Like, I mean, his... Axel's reputation with all these songs with getting the ring and everything, it just totally preceded him. And he said, Axel pushed me. And I said, that was rude. And he noticed that, that Axel had a huge ring on. And so he thought, you know what? If I get hit, it's going to take my eye out. It's going to take my teeth out. This is going to get bad. So it was just, it was a, it was a preemptive strike. And I love this quote. Like Axel was asked about this later. And he said, uh, quote, it was the most surreal thing I think that's ever happened to me in my life. He just kept smacking me. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I think it would be pretty surreal if Tommy Hilfiger was beating the crap out of you. That does seem like a dream that you would have, you know, on par. After having too much spicy food, like late at night, and you would have that dream. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, You know, and and maybe that's like some sort of weird anxiety dream about, uh, you know, not feeling good about your wardrobe. So like a fashion designer (laughs) is beating you up. Yeah, I don't know if that would be the interpretation of that. I'm I'm not a psychiatrist, but... Um, I, I just think it's funny that for Axel, with all the things that have happened to him in his life, even for him, he thought, oh, this is like a cut above the weirdness of my just everyday life. I can't believe that this happened to me. I think it was a happy ending, though, too. Didn't they like patch things up later? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I think that they, you know, I think they both realized like, wow, this is like such a bizarre thing. Maybe we should just both try to put it behind us and uh, and be friends. So. Anyway, in terms of Axel's 
fighting history, that is really the only like kind of big fight that he actually got into. Otherwise, it's a lot of talk and virtually no bite coming from Axel. Right. I mean, you know, it's just funny how this reputation just was really born. Would you say primarily out of getting the ring? Like, I'm trying to figure out at what point that his reputation as this, like, you know, WWF wrestler turned singer began. Like, was it, because looking back on it, I think it's around there, but was it earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think there was an idea that Axel was a tough guy that predated getting the ring. I think getting the ring, in a way, was the pinnacle of that and also the beginning of the end. Mm. Uh, Because... um, I mean, the thing about Axel, and, and again, like, as I said earlier, Guns N' Roses was a big band of my youth. There's still a band that I love. And Axel Rose is like one of my favorite rock stars of all time. And I, I think the appeal of Axel Rose, in much the same way as it is for someone like Kanye West, who I think, weirdly enough, is like the closest thing that we have to an analog to Axel Rose. I see that, uh, like, yeah. like early 90s Axel Rose that we have now, that... He's like 50% cartoon, you know, and 50% like ultra real, keep it real, like human being, you know, like he's someone that obviously wears all of his emotions on his sleeve and doesn't keep anything back. And, you know, while his prime predated social media, he did have that sort of like oversharing quality that is so common now with pop stars. Like he had that in the late 80s and early 90s. But then... He's also larger than life. And in a song like Get in the Ring, he's 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 basically like a pro wrestler, you know? And it it's it's part of what makes that song, I think, so lovable as a piece of camp. Like I, again, I, I don't know how you feel about that song generally. I mean I mean, I mean, do you appreciate it on that level or is it just like garbage to you? I mean, I have a hard time listening to it as like a real song. Like it's more sort of infamous to me than I, I, I have a hard time stripping away the, the backstory from when I hear it. I don't know. I'd like to, to read Mick Wall's assessment of the uh, of the song, which kind of mirrors my own. He calls Get in the Ring uh, a lot of L.A. puff about nothing, a big, Terry hair-pulling tantrum from an overindulged child star shouting and swearing because he can't get his own way. Um, so that's, that, that kind of goes with, with what, how I feel about it. I I am curious that you mentioned that Guns N' Roses, big band of your youth, somebody you really, I won't say admired, but definitely, you know, have an affection for, um, as a music journalist now, how do you view that song? Like, do you feel a lot more sympathy and affinity towards Mick Wall and Bob and all the people he called out? Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like I, I, I put myself in their position and I, I, it just seems unfathomable to me to be in the eye of that kind of storm because, you know, nowadays, I think it's actually pretty common for journalists to end up on the wrong end, uh, end of a stick with a with a celebrity. Like you and I have both had uh, situations like where famous people didn't like something that we wrote uh, and they called us out on social media and getting a and it's tweet not fun. sent in your... Yeah, it's not fun. And 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 having a mean tweet written about you and then having like all of like the minions come out, you know, all the dregs of social media coming out to sort of chime in and take shots at you. That's not fun and it, it can be pretty intense for about, you know, 24 to 48 hours. But that's not the same thing as like having a song written about you and having that song on like one of the biggest albums in the world. And you know, just I mean, like tweets they come and go, and people tend to move on uh, after not a whole lot of time. But, like, getting the ring 
is a song that, again, like here we are, we're like, it's like 30 years later and we're talking about like how Mick Wall and Axl Rose were feuding in 1990, you know? Like we wouldn't really remember this stuff if it weren't for this song. It just like blows it up to like a whole other like level of like mythical proportions. It's an immortal feud. Like exactly. It's just, it, 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 it'll always, it'll never fade. It's so yeah. strange. Yeah, it's crazy. And like, you know, I don't think that this is a great song. <laughs> like there's are there I think there are like obviously many other songs from like that era of, of GNR that are, that way overshadow this song. Um but in a way this song is important as far as showing how the perception of Guns N' Roses changed pretty dramatically in the early 90s. Like um the the Usual Illusion albums they came out the same month as Nevermind. You know, and and like Pearl Jam 10 came out, I think, like a month earlier. You know, this was kind of the beginning of the end of like rock stars acting like this and getting away with it. You know, there was like a whole other generation coming in where they wouldn't have acted like this. There was a there was a new kind of sensitivity. It's like a self-seriousness. yeah, and like and like kind of de-emphasizing machismo. I mean, you could say that that came back later in the decade, like with all the new metal bands that came back, like the Limp Biscuits and and Corns and bands like that. They reiterated that to some degree, but like you know, I don't think that those bands, as big as they got, were ever on the scale of like Axl Rose in 1991, like right before this band started to go into, into decline. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, the, getting the ring is the high watermark right before the that sort of wave of ridiculousness just completely crested. Right. So, I mean, it, it, if we look at this song, I mean, normally in this part of the episode, we would like give the pro side for each side of the rivalry. I mean, I think the pro side for the journalists in the song is pretty clear cut that Axel was insane to write this song and that they didn't deserve to get called out uh, in the way that they did. You know, the pro side for Axel, I guess, would be that 30 years later, when there's no danger of anyone actually getting physically harmed because of this song, to me, again, it just lives on as like lovable camp. And it's something that I enjoy listening to, not necessarily because it's a good song, but just because I think it's really funny. And it usually puts a smile on my face when I hear it. I think it's like an inkblot test for how you feel about Axel, too. Like, I mean, if, if you kind of, if, if you're predisposed like I was because I, I, got to know him as sort of like the guy who made Guns N' Roses disintegrate because he fired everybody or made it unlivable. And you're predisposed to think that he's kind of ridiculous. You think that this is just the ultimate moment of his ego and just just insanity. But if, if you like and, and kind of have a soft spot for his his brashness, then yeah, I can see this being like a really fun piece of uh, piece of performance art. What's funny now is that, you know, Axl Rose is now known as the guy who calls out Steve Mnuchin on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Like like he's that. calling out members of the Trump administration to get in the ring, you know? And like it's one of those things like where people kind of love him now for that brashness, you know, cuz he cuz he'll do that to uh to politicians. Yeah, I saw someone tweet about this recently where they you know they said, you know, imagine you know, imagine being it's 1990 and you're thinking about the year 2020 and like what the reputation of Axel Rose is versus Morrissey. and and like things change a lot over the course of decades and 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 how we look at things can shift over time and even a song like get in the ring in its own small way could maybe be redeemed wow that that is a that is a beautiful thought steven i love that you've you've really you've changed my approach on that (laughs) well jordan i hope that you and i will never have reason to get in the ring 
Guns, knives, or fists, Stephen. Gun, knives, or Stephen. <laughs> See you in well, the, back of the uh, back of the Tower Records parking lot. All right, man. Well, until then, everyone, we'll be back with more Rivals next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse... I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.